Hi, y'all doing good? Nice to see all of you today. Welcome to Journey Church, especially if you're our guest. We're privileged to be with you today and hope today is meaningful and special and lasting for all of you. Starting this week and running for the next three of the Three of the next four weekends, we have one guest speaker coming to be with us the second weekend in July. You won't want to miss him, I promise. We're going to be talking green around Journey Church. Your notes pages are even green, right? Uh, A series very aptly entitled, She's a Stewardess. She's a stewardess. And I'm not going to tip my hand so early in the series to answer the inevitable question like, She's a stewardess, like, what the heck is that, right? That's what you're all thinking. I'm going to keep you in suspense for a little while at least. And because we're talking about green matters, uh, you know that Bozeman is getting curbside recycling, I think this fall it's coming, right? The little bins that you'll have and you'll separate all of your stuff, uh, you know, glass in one and plastic in one and paper in the other, and uh, that'll be cool. You're going to have to pay for it, but it's coming nonetheless. And there's going to be good recyclers and there's going to be bad recyclers, see? And a good recycler is a person who very carefully separates their recyclables every week and then puts them at the curb. The aluminum cans go in one and paper in another and glass in another, plastic in another. Each of the items in its appropriate recycling bin. That is a good recycler. A bad recycler is the person who gives the recycling bins to their children to use as toboggans on snowy days. So... Let's all be good recyclers, no tubs as toboggans, all right? And you talk about a subject matter, these green matters that is wrought with difficulty, right? I got to say, the more that I read, the more I study on the subject of green, the more distraught, literally, the more distraught that I become over the fact that green matters, environmentalism, environmental stewardship and such, has become so doggone politicized. Would you agree with that? It's so politicized. Green issues are the latest political hot potato, and I'm of the view that we're not going to see that change any time in the foreseeable future. Politicians think the more green they are, the more votes we will automatically give them, just because they're green. But I do want to say, right up front, that it's going to be our attempt with this series called She's a Stewardess, that we're not going to contribute to the political polarization of the subject of environmental stewardship. We're not going to do it. We're not going to throw more, more gasoline on that fire. That's not at all politically correct or green, is it? Gasoline on a fire. But rather, it's our hope that we're going to be able to biblicize the subject of environmental stewardship. It's our hope that for us as a community called Journey Church, that we'll be able to frame the green matter in such a way that you would run everything that you hear on the environment, whether it be from politicians or whether it be from pundits, that you would run it through the grid of the Bible and actually hear what God has to say on the subject of the environment because he speaks loudly and he speaks clearly on the subject. That brings us to our big idea for today that says this, As the Imago Dei, as the Imago Dei, the image of God on the planet, God has asked us, humanity, to represent Him as we reign over His creation. Will you pause and pray with me? God, it's sure good to be here. It's sure good to be in this community with this family, around you and around your word and around the things, God, that we believe that you have for us. So we open ourselves to you in this time. 
We avail ourselves to your will and your words and what you have for us, God. Please show up and speak real clearly to us, revealing to us how you want us to change and how you want us to think differently, how you want us to live differently because of what we've learned about you and seen of you, God. This is your time. It's for you and because of you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. I think it's real important as we start talking about the subject of environmental stewardship to lay some theological foundations, some foundations about who God is. And we're coming at this whole green issue, the whole issue of environmental stewardship, the whole issue of she's a stewardess. We are coming at this from a God-centered perspective, all right? We are a church. And just like if you went to a sports bar, what would you expect to see on the TV screens in a sports bar? Sports, that's exactly right. If you walked into a sports bar and they were watching soap operas, you would say, hey, there's something wrong with this picture, right? So this is a church. We're coming at this whole green subject from the perspective of God and his view, which means we'd better start by laying some theological foundations. We believe that God is the creator of the earth, which means that if we ever hope to understand how we're to think about the environment, we'd better know something about the one who created the environment, right? Let's start with these theological foundations. First of all, point A on your outline, God is, um, these are big words, but they're easy. God is omnipotent and he is omniscient. God is omnipotent and he is omniscient. Those are fancy ways to say the word omnipotent first, that God is of unlimited authority or influence. God is of unlimited authority or influence. Or another way to say it is God is all-knowing. That's what the word omnipotent means. God is all-knowing. God is all, I mean all-powerful, sorry, that's my bad. God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. Omniscient is God is all-knowing, forgive me. That means that God has infinite awareness, infinite understanding, infinite insight into everything. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Look at Psalm 147, verse 5. How great is our Lord. His power is absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. Speaking to the power of our God. Look at Jeremiah 32, 17. O sovereign Lord. That's a big word. We'll get to it in just a minute. You made the heavens and earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. God has big biceps, right? Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too difficult for God. Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. No one is able to. Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? No one. Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No, because God is omniscient. He knows all. Isaiah 29 verses 15 and 16. What sorrow awaits those who try to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their evil deeds in the dark. The Lord can't see us, they say. He doesn't know what's going on. How foolish can you be, the text says. He is the potter and he is certainly greater than you, that's us, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it, he didn't make me, does a jar ever say, the potter who made me is stupid? Of course not. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful, omnipotent, and omniscient. 
The second theological foundation that it's important for us to lay down is that we as human beings, we are absolutely incapable of frustrating God's purposes. We cannot do it. We cannot frustrate God's plans nor his purposes. I want you to know that God is not merely standing around trying to determine exactly what it is that we, his creatures, are going to do, like wringing his hands, hoping that we will bend to his desires. It is not even close of our God. Look at Daniel 4, verse 35. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. It puts us in our place doesn't it? And compared to God, we are nothing. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? We cannot get in the way of what God is unfolding. Look at Ephesians 1.11. He makes everything work out according to his plan. God is unfolding a plan and we cannot stand in the way of it. Point C on your outline, God is firmly in control of everything that is happening. God is firmly in control of everything that is happening. I don't know if you read the article this week, but I bumped into it. It was a science article talking about by the end of this summer, there will literally be no ice. They're hypothesizing there will not be any ice at the North Pole of our planet. There will not be any ice at the North Pole of our planet. And we're like, whoa. That's like a big deal, right? Because there's always ice at the North Pole of our planet, but they're saying year by year the ice has been melting, 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 and so what does actually form up there is just one winter ice, and it melts in a hurry. But I want you to know that God is firmly in control of no ice at the North Pole. He knew it was happening. He knew it was coming. Look at Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 5. With my great strength and powerful arm, there's his biceps again, I made the earth and all its people and every animal, God says. I can give these things of mine, because it's his, to anyone I choose. God is firmly in control of every single thing that is happening. Point D, nothing we ever do will surprise God nor find him unprepared to handle the resultant situation. Nothing we ever do is a surprise to God. Look at Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. Remember the things I have done in the past for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish, God says. And then point E, God is also sovereign. That's a fancy way to say that everything is in the reach of God. Nothing is outside of the reach of God. Nothing is outside of the authority of God. He is sovereign. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 14 and 17. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. Don't try. God cannot be bribed. Psalm 22, verse 28. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. God alone is sovereign. Psalm 24, verse 1 and 8. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's important to keep in mind as we talk about the matter of environmental stewardship. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Who is the king of glory, the psalmist asked. 
Well, it's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. He is all-powerful. And then from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. The blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, all honor and power to Him forever. And that's where we start. We sing that song, This is Our God. This is Our God. That theological foundation, that's who our God is. And so before we ever even arrive at the pages of the book of Genesis, at the creation account for how this world came into being, that is the underpinnings, those are the underpinnings of who God is, who the Creator, capital C, is. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is incapable of having his purposes frustrated. He is firmly in control of everything that is happening. He is not surprised by any action, nor is he left wondering what he should do in the aftermath of any event. He is sovereign. That is our God. And that's the God who is unseen. That's the God whom we read about on the first pages of our Bible at the creation account. I'd invite you to turn to the book of Genesis if you've got a text. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The very first page of Scripture in your Bible. Genesis 1.1. If you don't have a text, you can follow along on the side screens. Here's what the Bible says. In the beginning, you know these words. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And that's just how everything that we see around us, this space that we occupy on planet earth, that's just how it came into being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, the creation narrative continues. That God made the light and the sky and the land and the seas and vegetation of every kind. And he made the sun and the moon and the stars and the fish and all of the aquatic life and birds and animals of every kind. And at every single step of the creation narrative, at every stop along the way, God saw what he had created. He looked on what he had just made. And what did he call it? Good. He called everything good. That means God looked on the light that he made and the sky that he made and the seas that he made and the vegetation that he made and the sun that he made and the moon that he made, the stars and the fish, all of the aquatic life, the birds and the animals of every kind, and he said, that is good. And you would all agree with that, wouldn't you? Right? Like we step out our porches every single, we step out our front doors every single day and we just look around us and go, holy cow. God is good. Look at what he made. Personally, I think God's use of that word good is a little bit of an understatement, though, right? Like the word great just seems much more appropriate for God's handiwork in creation. Maybe even the word awesome seems to fit. You've all been places on planet Earth where you stand back and the only word that comes to mind is awesome, right? You know those places. You're probably thinking about it right now. The point is that every step of the creative process, God looks on what he made and he puts his own good housekeeping seal of approval on it. God's opinion of his creation is that it was good. And then on the sixth day of creation, something very special happened. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. God all of a sudden amps up his creative prowess 
Look at it with me. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. And I'm not even going to get into that us, our, us thing. Like It's like 10 messages for another series, another year probably. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, all the small animals that scurry along the ground that we run over while we're driving down the streets these days and they like flop around on the pavement after that happens. And that is awful. And I'm sorry to conjure up that image for you. Please forgive me. But the ones that scurry along the ground too. So God created human beings in his own image. Let that wash over you. So God created human beings in his own image. That's big. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth, all the fruit trees for your food, and I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good, he said. Finally, he gets it right. Very good, right? The Bible over and over again, you know this, calls Adam the very first human being. And it's with God's creation of the first human being that God reveals for us a new, higher purpose for creation. A higher plane than just land and sea and animals and fish. Because see, God put Adam on the earth as his special work. Eve too, by the way, as his special work. The crown jewels of all that he had created. And how do we know? That humanity was God's crown jewel of creation. Look at Genesis 1.27. The answer is right here. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. While every, certainly every single thing in creation can be called God's handiwork, nothing else in creation except humanity possesses the imago Dei, the image of God except us. We're the only bearers of the image of God on planet earth. God was not putting his image into the trees and into the fish and into the animals. He put his image in just one place and that's in us, in all of humanity, in every person who was ever born, whoever will be born as the bearer of the image of God. And since the very beginning of time, people, us, we've been asking God these questions of meaning, these questions of purpose, these questions of what on earth am I here for? We've been asking God the question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 8:4. Look at what it says. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Asking God the question, why is it that we matter to you? And the text, God's word, the Bible, answers the psalmist's question in a profound way by Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in his own image. That's why we're here. That's why we matter. That's why we have purpose. In the image of God, he created them. He created us. Male and female, he created them. You and I, we're God's own image 
image. We are created in the image of God. And the psalmist says it this way in Psalm 8, 5, yet you crown them with glory and honor. He crowned us with glory and honor and he did that by putting his image inside of us. For us to be the imago Dei, for us to be the image of God, it is no simple concept. To be the imago Dei means that we are automatically and intrinsically connected with God's design for all of humankind and for all of creation. Being made in the image of God classifies us as God's special creatures. We're the image of God, see, because we've received the special calling that God has given to us. We're the image of God because we're now in the process of fulfilling the special calling that God has given to us. And we're the image of God because one day, the day that is coming, we will fully live according to the special purpose that God has given to us. What is the special calling? What is the special design? What is this special purpose? It's this. It's to mirror for the sake of the creation the very nature of the creator. Get that. Our purpose is to mirror for the sake of the creation the very nature, the very essence of the creator. That's God. You see, in the ancient world, images were believed in lots of ways to carry the nature or the very essence of that which the image represented. That's what idols were all about in the ancient world. Idol images of God were used in the worship of those same gods because the idols were thought to contain the very essence and the very nature of those gods. Now that doesn't mean that the image could do what the deity did precisely, nor does it even mean that the image looked the same as the deity, even though the idol was indeed a physical object. Instead, the work of the deity was thought to be accomplished through the idol. The Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 1 for the word image is this word salem. Salem, which means a a representative in physical form, not a representation of the physical appearance. A representative in physical form. You can touch it. And this concept was employed all over the ancient Near East by kings. They would go into a region, they would go into a territory, and they would conquer it, and they would very often leave images of themselves behind in those cities and in those territories where they could not be present in person at all times because they had other territories to conquer. Those images served to represent their majesty and represent their authority and represent their power in that place, even though they were not physically present. And that concept is slightly helpful for us in our understanding of what exactly the Imago Dei is. But it isn't all the way until Genesis chapter 5, you can flip over there if you would, where we see the most significant insight into just what the Imago Dei is and what it is about. Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 through 3, you can follow along. This is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son. And I just want to say, like, that is the definition of virility, isn't it? When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him. Get that. Who was just like him in his very image. And he named his son Seth. 
This is an incredibly significant passage when it comes to our determination of how we ought to interpret what it means to be created in the image of God. It's here that we see the text liken the image of God in Adam to the image of Adam in his son, Seth. Now we see a couple of times prior to chapter 5 in the creation account, we see and read about both plants and animals reproducing after their own kind. It's good for us to know that, that plants and animals are reproducing in their same kind. Not, they're not reproducing other things and other kinds in their same kind, see? Genesis chapter 5 is going way beyond that, though. We're all keenly aware that our offspring share certain physical characteristics and a basic genetic nature with us. I always think that it is a very hilarious thing when people say to dads about their brand new babies, it likely happens in the hospital room shortly after the child has been born, somebody says to the dad, man, he or she looks just like you. I just think that is a hilarious thing because it is never true. Right? It's a lie. I'm not sure if the people who say it, they're wanting to like reassure the dad that the kid is certainly their kid, right? Or if it's just the fact that people run out of things to say about this young, brand new infant. I mean, really, how much can you say about an infant, right? They're cute and all, but you can only say so much. And then you're like, I got nothing else to say. Infants do not look like anyone but themselves, Right? But what does happen is that the image of the father grows more recognizable as that kid matures. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about the way that the kid mirrors the attitudes and mirrors the expressions and mirrors the character traits of the father. And with the explanation in Genesis chapter 5, We're given the key to the reality that while we are all created with the imago Dei, the image of God inside of us, we bear the image of God. We also, and this is very important for us to understand, we have the capacity, see, to grow more and more in the image of God. None of us are just born with a fixed amount of the image of God, and that's it, a static amount. You and I and every human being have the capability to mirror increasing levels of God's attributes, of God's character traits, of God's attitudes, see. Lots of times around here you'll hear me talk about being made more in the image of God or say something like, you're looking more and more like Jesus Christ. That is not a physical thing whatsoever. I have no idea what Jesus looked like. And if I did, what good would it serve for us to like try to be his twin, like do our hair like his and dress like him? It doesn't matter. When somebody says being made more in the image of God or looking more and more like Jesus, they're talking about attitudes. They're talking about expressions. They're talking about character traits which mirror the attributes and the expressions and the character traits of God himself. In the New Testament of the Bible, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, it says this about the image of God growing inside of us. Look at the text. Put on your new nature, Paul writes, and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. 
That's saying that the longer that we walk with and the longer that we know and the longer that we live in relationship with God, the more like Him we ought to be. The image of God inside of us ought to get bigger and bigger and bigger on the screen of our life. Because see, for us to bear the image of God, it means that the image that's us is a physical manifestation of the divine essence that bears the function of the one which it represents. That bears the function of the one which it represents. This gives the image bearer the capacity to reflect the attributes of the one represented and then to act on his behalf. See, Jesus, as we all know, is the physical representative of God. Jesus was not a physical representation of what God looks like. Rather, Jesus bears and Jesus bore the essence of God. Jesus reflects God's attributes. Jesus acts on God's behalf. Look at Colossians 1.15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. See? And because the Imago Dei is in us, because the image of God is in all of us, we too are the bearers of the very essence and nature of God himself. That means that our charge as human beings is to mirror, to reflect for the sake of creation the very nature of the Creator, the very nature of God Himself. So often we define ourselves by what we do, right? I'm a banker. I'm a builder, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a landscaper, I'm a host or a hostess, I'm a DJ, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a coach, I'm a salesperson, I'm a student, I'm a clerk, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a manager, I'm a lawyer, I'm a CEO. But that is not all you are. You are not merely what it is that you most commonly define yourself as. Rather, at the bottom of who you are, at the foundational level of who you are, who every human being on planet earth is, is an image bearer of God himself. You are reflecting him to every single person around you, every single moment of every single day, because the very image of God himself, the Imago Dei, resides inextricably inside of you, indelibly stamped upon you. You cannot remove the image of God from you. Nobody can. So let me ask you this. How visible is the Imago Dei that's coming out and bouncing off of your life. How visible is the Imago Dei, the image of God that's coming out of your life? Are people regularly catching a glimpse of the very essence of God just because they've been with you? Can that be said of you? And sometimes we ask these sorts of questions in the church and we church people are pretty quick to answer those questions. Of course, we say, of course people catch a glimpse of the essence of God when they're with me. I'm always talking about God, the people I'm with. I'm always reading verses to the people that I'm with from the Bible. I'm always letting people know where I stand with God, trying to get them to stand in that place too. Of course, I'm bearing the image of God and that's fine and that's good. 
But what if the visibility of the Imago Dei coming out of your life was way less about what you say and was way more about just how you are with people? Way less about what you say and just about how you are with people, how you relate with people. What if the visibility of the image of God through your life was more about how people feel valued and esteemed and cared for when they are in your presence? What if the visibility of the image of God through your life was less about, way less about what you said and was way more about how you listen to people and how you care about people and how you relate to people than it is about the words that come out of your mouth? Is the very nature, is the very essence of God exuding from the life that you live as you go about what we might class as the small stuff in life? The way we treat people, the way we relate to people, the way we listen to people, the way we pay attention to people. Is the nature of God himself evident in and through the subtleties of your everyday life? It should be. It should be. Because we are indelibly stamped with the image of God, with the Imago Dei. It is on us and in us and was put in us to be reflected to the people around us. And in the setting of Genesis chapter 1, in the context of environmental stewardship, in the context of the creation account, that means that one of the ways that we, as human beings, act on God's behalf is this word, reign. This word, reign. It is our charge that God gives us in the first chapters of the Bible to reign over His, and it is His, creation. Look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so see, God puts his image, he puts his imago Dei inside of humanity so that out of his image and out of his nature and out of his essence, we would reign over the creation. As the image bearers of God himself, we are to mirror, we are to reflect the very nature of the creator, the very nature of God himself to the entire creation, see. And I don't do this to you very often. As a matter of fact, I don't know that I've ever done this to you, but I'm going to leave you dangling this weekend on that note of rain, see. I'm like driving the car up to the edge of the cliff and throwing it into park all of a sudden because it literally takes an entire sermon. I could not do it justice in the time we have remaining. It's going to take an entire message next weekend to unpack that word rain. It's partner verse Genesis. You might write this down. Genesis 2.15. And I encourage you to get around that this week. And the cultural mandate, it's called, that we find in Genesis 2.15 for what it means for us to reign, what it means for us to keep, what it means for us to tend the creation, and so on it goes. So take your things, if you would, and set them aside. I'm leaving you hanging. And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, if you would.
And I just invite you to speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. I invite you to listen in to him and hear from him what it is that he might be saying to you today. You can do that now. ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would for the next few moments and I just want to invite you to use this time to do any business any business at all that you might need to do with God maybe you have some business to do with God around the subject of the Imago Dei the image of God inside of you how it is that you mirror the nature and essence of God to the rest of creation been slogging through the world together and the world tells us lots of things that we are doesn't it sometimes people just flat call us names don't they those names they're not true of you they're not even close to true of you What's true of you is you are created in the image of God. The Imago Dei resides in every single one of you. No matter what anybody says about you, that doesn't change. You are the image of God. And maybe that's a new thought for you. I just invite you today to step into that reality, to step into the truth that you are an image bearer of the almighty God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. Step into that truth. Go out those doors today decidedly different because that's true of you. And maybe as you reflect on the Imago Day that's being reflected off of your life, and there are some things about the image you're casting of God that needs to change. Maybe there's some smudges on the mirror of your life. I just invite you to commit those things to the Lord. Make a plan for how those things are going to change, how those things are going to be different. And maybe, just maybe, underneath all of that, as you sit here in this room today and you reflect in these moments, you know beyond the shadow of any doubt that you don't yet have a relationship with our God, with the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. But it doesn't have to stay that way. God doesn't even want it to be that way, as a matter of fact. 
God loves you so much that when he created you, he put his image inside of you. And then he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul by his sacrifice. And you can choose in this moment to put your faith and your trust in him. You can choose in this moment to begin a relationship, a friendship with God. You can come home to God maybe for the first time in your life, right here, right now. And if that's you, if that's the desire of your heart, I invite you to express that to God. You can do that by praying along with me this prayer right where you're sitting. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect. You alone are perfect and that you alone are holy. And God, that my sin has separated me from you. But God, with everything in me, I declare that I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to please forgive me and please send Jesus to live inside of me. And God, I want you to be my friend. I want you to change me. God, I want to reflect your image brilliantly all the way down to the subtleties of this life that I'm living. And starting today, God, I make you the boss of my life. And that decision to step into a relationship with God is the biggest decision you'll make your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing bears more weight than that decision right there. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they made that decision, when they prayed that prayer with me just then. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. I want you to know that nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking around but me. If you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes, I stepped into a relationship with God. I stepped over the line of faith. Yeah, you right there, way to go. You were created in the image of God. Way to go. Just make sure I catch your eye. Would there be any others? I don't want to miss anybody. Yeah, you right there. Way to go, man. You're created in the image of God. You're his son. Perfect in his eyes. And so God, we say that it is a stunning truth that you put your image inside of us. You stooped to our level to accomplish that, God, and that is humbling, staggering. But we thank you for the high privilege it is for us to be your image bearers, your representatives. God, I pray that the essence of you on our lives would be astounding, would be brilliantly reflected, not just in the words that we say, but in the actions, in the small stuff that we're walking out every single day, all the way down to the way we pass somebody on the sidewalk, God. That the image of God would be evident to the people we're walking by. Help them, please, 
see you inside of us, reflecting off of us. God, I pray for our journey into the subject of environmental stewardship and what it means for us to steward your planet, God. Pray that our hearts would be open, that our eyes would be open, that our ears would be attuned to you and your direction, God. That the invitations that you make to us to change and think differently, God, that we'd have the courage to walk them out, that we'd have the boldness to walk them out, to actually do what you're asking us to do. We're looking to you for guidance.